0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today is a new day and a new month in Cloud Security Podcast, so it is a new topic. This month's topic is going to be about cloud security trends, things that we are seeing as trending in cloud security, and things that we feel are definitely going to be creating a lot of noise in 2022. The first topic today is data security in cloud. And I could not have thought of a better topic to start off with because data security is so much more than access control for folks who watch to do data security and data privacy and also the different layers of access you can do. We had David McCaw from Desera who came in and spoke about data security in cloud, how cloud has made a lot of data security challenges easier, but at the same time, the amount of data that we're collecting as humans. I think the stat that was shared was we are about to hit a zettabyte of data by 2022, which is the entire amount of data that we have collected so far from our existence of possibly collecting data. So we are about to hit that stage. So data security has become even more important. During the episode, we spoke about a lot of challenges in the traditional world with data security and the silos that have been created for data security, whether data hygiene can actually help. We also spoke about the fact that, hey, is DLP enough in a cloud context and a lot more. If you enjoy this free episode of Cloud Security Podcast, feel free to leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others know about this as well and also helps our future guests know why they should come on the podcast. If you are already subscribed, thank you so much and I really appreciate you leaving us a review. It really means a lot. Thank you so much for that. Alright, let's get into the episode and talk about data security, and I'll see you next week with another episode on the trending topics in cloud security. For now, take care, stay safe, and uh, we'll get into the episode. Peace. Time is the enemy of security, and that's where Exonius comes in. Exonius helps organizations immediately know what assets they have, and shows which devices, cloud instances, and users adhere to or deviate from security policies. Learn more and try it for free at exonius.com. Hey, Cloud Security Podcast, Steve from BridgeCrew here. Check us out start scanning your infrastructure's code against hundreds of security policies, both on the command line and in your IDE. BridgeCrew also adds security feedback to all your commits and helps you fix misconfigurations in both code and runtime. How do you get your cloud security news without scouring the internet for hours? I normally just head to cloud security news to get my weekly update on what's most popular in the cloud security world. If you are interested in this, Check out cloud security news on all popular podcast platforms, or on www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv Hello, hello, hello and welcome to another episode of virtual coffee with Ashish. And I'm presenting this on behalf of cloud security podcast. Today's topic is a new month and we are talking about all the trends that are going on in cloud security, but we haven't been able to cover them throughout the year, but somehow they're going to have a huge impact in 2022 and moving forward and to kick it off i have a really interesting topic that i don't think we have spoken about ever on the show so I'm so glad that I've got a friend of mine coming in to talk about this. Hey, <laughs> David, how's it going? I'm doing well. Good, good. I'm so glad you could come in, man. I think we, you and I have had so many conversations and it's not even funny that how often we were like, oh, there, there is something here, there is something here. And I'm I'm so glad I could bring you on the, onto the show as well, man. So I'm really excited for this. I wanted to start with, because I know a lot about you, man, I think, but some of the audience members may not, they might may not even know your uh, celebrity status as well. So I would love for you to kind of tell the audience a bit about yours. Sure.
1: You and I, of course, crossed paths maybe about five years ago when I was the first go-to-market person at a company called Redlock, which was one of the early leaders in the cloud security posture management space. And obviously it was acquired by Palo Alto Networks and became Prisma Cloud. But I've been in industry for roughly 20 years and the path that I followed has been one that's been very carefully selected by myself from kind of organization that I've joined to space that I wanted. To to tackle. So when I came into the industry 20 years ago, I was with a company that was doing testing software, testing automation to help people improve software quality as part of the development lifecycle. We have some interesting stories there, and Ashish, I shared one with you, where during that time in 1998, actually sold the first piece of commercial software ever to Sergey Brin when he was in college, and they were working on Google as a prototype. They had some memory leaks that they needed to be able to resolve, and they called and asked if we could provide them with a, a student discount with some software to find their memory leak, and, and so we did just that, and lo and behold, Google be becomes one of the biggest companies on the planet. But I spent a good amount of time there, really focused on how do you improve SDLC? Mm -hmm. How do you create a more predictable SDLC through automation and, and continuous verification? And we really pioneered some of the early principles that have kind of created what DevOps is today. And so while initially the focus there was on code quality, I then joined a company called Coverity, where we started to shift from just focusing on quality to application security and kind of taking AppSec, which was historically kind of an end-stage process, just like testing was an end-stage process, and helping CISOs and leaders at that time bring AppSec into something that would scale by shifting it left in the development process. So that was kind of the early phase of my career. And As new technologies have emerged, particularly cloud, there are a lot of the principles that were applied in application quality that now were also applicable in cloud. So at the moment that you could start provisioning infrastructure as code, that also was the moment that you should start validating that infrastructure as code, the same way that we've always validated code historically. So, as mentioned, I was very, very early in the journey of RedLock and building that out as a company. And since then, I've had the opportunity to work very closely with the the founding team at Cloudnox, who's a leader in infrastructure entitlement management for for cloud. And most recently, I've joined as a co-founder at Desera, where I'm, very, very excited about what we're doing
0: next. That's pretty awesome. And I wonder how many people think that if Google would ca- call anyone now for a student discount, it's gonna be the other way around with like, hey, can you work with us, please? But it's an amazing story, man. I think you to be able to have I don't want to use the word veteran because it sound pretty old, uh, but you kind of are a veteran in the cybersecurity space, having met the celebrities, being a mini celebrity yourself as well. And Redlock definitely was one of the first ones to kind of stand out and with the whole the hack that was discovered by the breach that of in Tesla that was just discovered by them. That, yeah. that definitely caught them in the news because we're talking about data security and a lot of people have like a very broad understanding of what data security is like, but I'm curious to know what does data security in cloud, uh, what does that mean for you?
1: Yeah. Great question. I, I think to fully contextualize that, you need to take a little bit of a step back and and think about what has cloud meant to industry as a whole, right? And how has cloud enabled digital transformation? How has cloud enabled businesses to start moving faster? Right? So if you look at this whole kind of push towards digital transformation, it's really fueled by data. And there are a bunch of interesting statistics out there, but I'll share a few of them for for the listeners in case they haven't heard these. In 2020, it's estimated that there will be 175 zettabytes of data that are collected and stored across cloud environments, okay? And to put that into context, 175 zettabytes is the equivalent of all data that's been collected and stored in the, in the aggregate history of mankind. Wow. So, yeah. So if you take our entire and benchmark that against just what we're collecting in terms of data this year, it's even. and. That number is growing 30 to 40% year over year. And and if you think about that in terms of like our daily lives, right? Like organizations are now trying to capture every piece of telemetry that they possibly can to assist in automated decision-making and extracting as much value as they can and helping their business move at a much faster pace, right? So it's what comes first, right? Does the cart before the horse in terms of what is data and what is data security and cloud? Like cloud enabled the mass collection of data that fuels this digital transformation and we need to look at things kind of in harmony versus individually. And so the data collection is massive because of modern cloud architecture and how easy it is to deploy infrastructure in cloud. You're also now seeing a challenge where you've got cloud velocity is moving faster than governance is able to keep pace. The data environment is now decentralized compared to how it used to be before people were in the cloud. So back in the day, you'd open a ticket with a DBA or your IT administrator, and you'd ask for a database and they'd go rack something into your colo. And that was it. But now people are like spinning up Redshift instances and RDSs and snowflakes and big queries. So now you have this very distributed environment that's housing much 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 more data so that just creates a problem and challenge in terms of governance and and security because of the complexity of that environment and then throw into the mix the fact that there are over 160 countries now that have passed privacy legislation around how you can actually use and how you need to protect that data for consumers so there's a lot that comes into call it a, a data governance program and even more that needs to be considered when you look at that in the same context as your overall cloud security program and yeah. that's what we're helping people try to understand
0: it's always shows the depth of the work that you guys have done in this space as well for data security is to what you just mentioned between privacy and the fact that now in a cloud world where a lot of people don't really have the database administrator title like that used to be a thing now yeah. as a developer i I can just create a database whenever I want because I just need like the right template and I can just create the right database of any size that I want. That can be really scary as well. But is that what, I mean, I know the, the real concern with data security, or at least a lot of people think about data security from a, how do I put this? They put it from a, oh, my data breach perspective. They're going, oh, I don't want to get data breached. That's like when people talk about cloud and data, they're really thinking, oh, I just want to prevent data breach. Now, is that really... Like, I guess it sounds like there's a lot more depth to it because what you just said is another layer that no one's talking about. People are talking about, hey, my S3 bucket is open or yep. I don't know, something else is open. They're not talking about there is this silo between my data privacy team and then there is my data storage. So is there more to this, the whole data breach thing than just like S3 bucket being open on the Internet? There's quite a bit more. And transparently, I'm
1: also learning about this every single day as we're trying to get to what the root of the challenges are across industry. And one thing that I didn't say when I framed the problem is, as there are studies that have gone out that have indicated that more than 50% of security professionals have little to no confidence around their data security posture and the number of breaches. Although we've been applying methodologies like DLP for many years, the number of breaches has not gone down at all. In fact, it's growing. And and in fact, one other key metric Ashish, that I'll share with you. That I just thought was was egregious, considering all of the investment that's taken place over the years for data protection. Because when you think about it, our job in security is really two things: first, it's protecting the resilience of the infrastructure, and it's protecting the secrets, protecting the data. So, if you look at those as being the two core things that we're trying to accomplish in security, we're doing a pretty bad job on that whole data side and the metric i was going to share was according to ibm's data breach it takes on average 287 days to detect and contain a data breach 220 days is the detection side of it and then 67 days is the containment side but like i said with all the investment that we're making why does it take so long to detect a breach and i think your question was also Is it just breach that we, well, if you look at the big picture, as a security professional, we care about protecting them against the breach, right? As a privacy person, we care about adhering to the law, protecting our organization from any potential risk of legislation and enabling our business to grow faster in various regions around the world by complying with the laws that are mandated in order to operate in those parts of the world. And then the data team themselves, your CIOs, your data scientists, they care about being able to harness the value of data so they can push the business faster and gain competitive edge by being able to use data more freely. So if you look at that as driving the business, oftentimes right now, security has to introduce themselves as friction in that process. So they're actually slowing the business down while they're thinking about how to protect against breaches and not enabling the business to use data more freely. So when you think about like, what's the right strategy for data in the cloud, given that the landscape has changed and there's new business drivers, new architectures, multiple constituents. I do think we need to think more than just the breach aspect and and think about, hey, what are the drivers from each pillar within the business? And is there a way to help them collaborate harmoniously that achieves all of their objectives? And, and that's what
0: we're trying to solve. Oh my God, there's, there's so much to unpack there. Because as you were talking about privacy as well, uh, around 160 countries, that's maybe we just uh, had a moment because when most of security professionals talk about data privacy, they just normally think, oh, it's not security. That's that's legal problem. That's, that, that's another silo that we've created, unfortunately, in our security teams where data privacy has become more of a legal thing rather than a, a security thing. Thing. So GDPR, it's technically oh, I need to hire a lawyer in the UK for GDPR, and it's really interesting that you mentioned that the time it takes for someone to respond and contain. Because yeah. I think, as you mentioned, like oh, actually, yeah, that makes sense. Because if I have to deal with another team to find out, hey, who owns this? What's the right thing to do over here? I would never have the information as a security leader to know what the legal requirement for a particular country is you know, in a global in a global. Oh, so, Time to breach uh, is probably definitely relevant. It uh, sounds like the cost of the breach probably as well. I, can, I can't I can imagine it being a cheap exercise, but then growing a problem, zettabyte of data that you're storing. I, I did not even know byte was a term, but I, now I know too. zettabyte after that as well. I, I don't know. I should Google it. Yeah, I was like... Zettabyte, I'm like, so I would get, well, I'm going to Google it for sure later on. I've got Vinny's comment as well. Data classification is also an important part when making strategies for uh, data security. Yeah, 100%, man. Any? do you want to add on to that as well?
1: Absolutely. So there's a lot to unpack there. What we've learned is data classification is the starting point for any data protection. However, what we're seeing is that the context around data classification isn't really truly centralized in most organizations today. So... You've got the business who understands the data, they understand the purpose of the data. They understand the sensitivity of the data, the nuance around it, and they contain all of that context. Then you have security people who aren't the experts on the data, who are depending on their security tools to interpret automatically what the context of the data is. And these tools, there's no tool out there that just does an amazing bang up job of, of data classification. It's impossible. There's too many custom data types or too yeah. many different use cases from business to business, where something might be sensitive for one, for one organization and, and not sensitive for another. And then you have the legal team who understands like the implications of law on the data based on the type of data. So. What we've seen happening is each of these constituents runs their own technology stacks to power their core objectives. So data teams have data catalogs to facilitate data sharing. Security teams have data security tools to try to block bad things from happening. Legal teams have GRC systems where they document their compliance with various laws. The legal team need to go bother the data guys to understand the context so they can populate their GRC system. The security team needs to bother the data guys to help them configure their security tools. And it's never a perfect exercise. It's never set in stone and it constantly evolves. So it's constant overhead, constant work, right? And the fundamental thing that's broken there is the context that is owned by the business isn't shared and passed through in a continuous fashion through technology with the security and the privacy stakeholders. So that creates a lot of overhead and everybody's reinventing the wheel, trying to reclassify using whatever tool set that they have. And that's where we've seen a lot of the breakdown in the processes. So you need spot on, 100%, 100%, the foundation for an effective data security program is effective data classification. The more granular you can get, the more effective that program can be. But it all boils down to accuracy and context.
0: That's pretty awesome. And I think uh, you kind of touched on some of the risks because I am I was going to ask in terms of the scale of data security challenges. And you kind of touched on really interesting things where there's only multiple touch points for at any given point in time for data in any organization. So uh, good one that was there. By the way, thanks, Zenith. I think bazillion is the next term after the zettabyte. Actually, I don't know if bazillion is supposed to be just, it's a proper term, but everyone is like, yeah, a bazillion times. So it'll be really interesting if it's actually a term or actually a numerical value. So I was going to ask, so we spoke about data security in a cloud context. Is it like we have had collected data in traditional environments as well? Not that we haven't. Is that quite different? Like, I think what's the difference between that and what you're trying to do in cloud, I guess, because... It's not that data security wasn't a challenge in on-premise. We probably still had privacy team. We still had legal team, still had security team. So what's the difference in the cloud context?
1: Yeah, great question. Ashish, all your questions, you always ask. I <laughs> appreciate that, man. So a few things. Number one is in the traditional world, everything was a little bit more centralized, and it was e- easier to deploy kind of a moat around the crown jewels, a perimeter around the crown jewels, and try to protect it through infrastructure. Right? So you're creating this perimeter around your data, and, and that was the effect of your security program. In the cloud, you've got a few things that have fundamentally changed. One is that there is no more traditional perimeter, right? And so you can't quite easily build the same type of insulation around your data that you did in an environment where things were not ephemeral and things were not as dynamic and everybody across the organization didn't have the ability to deploy their own infrastructure. Number two is once again, this chicken and egg thing because of cloud and because the the csps themselves have, have made it very cheap to store data right because storing data doesn't cost you the money it's when you're actually moving it around and using it they've encouraged the collection of these large data sets right and with the advent of data science etc like businesses are seeing more and more reason to gather more data and then with that you have more functions in the business that are now using data right it's not just an application that's that's interfacing with the database and using data just to serve the purpose of the application it's really forecasting machine learning all of these different models so you have more and more types of sensitive data more people using it more decentralization and more legislation so those are all kind of factors that that come into play around why it's becoming more complex in the cloud. Now, there's always a trade-off because while there's more complexity in terms of the problem set, the advantage that we have in the cloud is you can deploy data infrastructure as code. So if we go back to kind of that theme that I shared with you guys around how I built my career, kind of following application security or application quality into application security, then into infrastructure security via cloud security posture management, then infrastructure entitlement on the cloud knock side, and now data. People moving their infrastructure to cloud was it was the impetus for being able to now go validate that infrastructure and understand the context of the entire environment through utilities like logs and ice. So you can contextualize and get a whole picture of the landscape and all the interactions with data in a programmatic fashion today that was Mm. much more difficult to achieve in a traditional on-prem world. So while you have the complexity, you also have the ability to create answers around that that are novel that are only empowered by kind of the, the visibility that we
0: can get into a public. Interesting, because as you were saying this, a thought that come to me whenever I talk about data security and to someone who's probably coming from a tra- traditional environment, One thing that I get thrown at by people is, hey, I've got access control. I've totally got this under control. So are you saying access control is not enough?
1: Access control is not enough. Access control is absolutely needed, right? But it's not enough because you can never get it right.
0: Hey, I totally get it right. I don't have any extra permission that I need to have, uh, David. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And then... When you couple that with all the different people who need access in the organization these days and the movement of people between organizations and the pivots of use cases around data. Access control needs to be there, but access control is generally a little bit, in most cases most users are overprivileged and it doesn't protect you against insider threat. It doesn't protect you against the event where somebody's credentials have been compromised. So you want it as a first line of defense. Absolutely. But then you need to triangulate that with like, what is the sensitivity of the data that your users actually have access to? What are the business obligations against that data? how are they actually using the data and are they using it in line with the business purpose? Is there any indication of compromise, whether it's their credentials have been stolen or their disgruntled employee and they're trying to take all the important information with them before they leave? Like you can only, access control is not going to solve any of that, right? You need to be able to contextualize really what are the interactions with the data and what does interpret that to figure out if it's something that's safe or not.
0: Yep, yep. Because that makes me go, People listening to this and going, oh, if access control is not enough, then what do people do, I guess? So maybe it, it, it would be a good step or at least next question to understand, what do you recommend as some of the controls people could be from, I guess, having a bit more control over their data security in cloud?
1: Yeah, yeah. So from a specific controls perspective, you're always going to want your access control in place. You're always going to want to make sure that anything you can encrypt is encrypted. You want to be able to hold your own keys. Things like data masking are also very, very valid techniques and appropriate techniques to apply. But the the thing is, every single one of those techniques are exactly that. They're tactical solutions to one part of the overarching challenge. Fundamentally, I think where we need to do a better job as an industry is with empathy across the different functions that we have that are all trying to solve a similar problem, but today are operating in their own swim lanes. And so it's funny that I say, hey, apply empathy as a security approach. But what what I mean by that is if you're only looking at one aspect of the problem without ever taking a step back and looking at the the end-to-end flow and the challenge holistically, then you can't ever iterate and improve on that problem. Ashish, it was less than a week ago. I saw Eric Block, who's a very well-respected security guy. So shout out to him on LinkedIn, posted an article from Harvard Business Review that I took a look at And the article. The title of the article was something along the lines of based on how you define the problem determines whether or not you solve it. And in the article, it, it talked about, it used Dyson as, as an example. And they said Dyson built the world's best vacuum cleaner and their innovation initially was around like the the quality of the filtering within the vacuum bag. And for many, many, many years, all of the competition came in and they all tried to iterate on new innovations on the vacuum bag itself, right? Because yep. that's what they had honed in and focused in on as the problem and it wasn't until Dyson rethought the problem and instead of saying hey how do I make a better vacuum bag?" they said how do I more effectively separate dirt from air that they made the quantum leap and innovation and created the industrial cyclone so to me I think this is so applicable to the space that we're living in like everybody's like how do I create a better DLP solution how do I do a better access control? And those things, you still need them. I'm not saying you don't need them, but if, you, if instead you say, how do I better empower my business to use data safely? And why can't I do it today? It's the lack of context across the entire life cycle, Nobody has visibility to what's happening with the data and how it's moving and being interacted with on a day-to-day basis while it's in the organization. And you'll never understand that by just deploying a a single infrastructure component that only has only sees one layer and nothing before or after. it. So you have to have that context and you have to have the empathy to understand that even if I'm in security is the work that I'm doing creating friction or empowerment for my data unit users and is the work that i'm doing am enabling compliance team to be more confident or am i just doing my job and they have to do their own thing and even if it means we're all like repeating work being redundant in the functions that we're doing i don't care because it's somebody else's job i think that needs to change and that's how we're trying to look at it a bit
0: differently. It's a deep, deep conversation there, man. because I, I was going to also say that as you were saying this, I kind of thought of the one challenge that I come across quite often is the data sprawl. And to at any given point in time to know what data was used by who in a, in a company, no one tracks that. There is no, I mean, at least I don't know who's tracking it. I, I don't think anyone out there, any security professional out there would know. Whether it's sensitive or non-sensitive, that's a completely different conversation. But like how data is sprawled across the entire organization Unless you're a startup with probably just one AWS account, I guess, different. But then I think there's a few more layers to it. We've got a few more questions coming in as well. i am just want to quickly address them. Hey, Tom. Uh, so Tom's asking, is DLP harder to manage in cloud environment?
1: DLP is hard to manage everywhere. And, and we'll, we'll go back to, I think it was Vinit's comment around, around data classification. Like DLP is only going to be as good as the data classification. And unless you have a process that enables high fidelity data classification as part of the data provisioning process, then the burden of doing that data classification falls onto security guys who just don't have the bandwidth to constantly tune and keep those DLP systems up with the speed of business. So Tom, earlier in the in in the conversation, we discussed the average time that it takes to detect and contain a data breach. And the average time was 220 days for the detection side. What I didn't point out was most of these organizations have DLP, right? But they're still getting breached. There was another article, I think it was, dark reading or or security Boulevard maybe about two months ago that said over 90% of organizations have suffered a data breach in the last 18 months and over 60% of organizations have suffered at least three. So when you triangulate all of these statistics, what it tells you is that DLP is deployed in many of these organizations, but nobody's actually blocking, nobody's actually turning it on with a level of confidence because the fidelity is so accurate that they can feel comfortable blocking somebody's flow during the business day-to-day business cycles. So these tools end up getting configured and having somebody who has to sit on top of them and try to manage them. But if you could never get that fidelity to a point where you have confidence in it, then it sits on in a passive mode and becomes more of a forensics tool for you to investigate what
0: (laughs) happened after
1: the breach, after your data's shown up in the dark web, then something that actually signals that you have a problem and prevents it from happening.
0: Yeah. There's a resourcing issue there as well with DLP, right? Because you have you need to have another person manning the DLP on an ongoing basis. For the alerts that are raised over there so there is that challenge as well hopefully that answered your question john thanks for that man really good question i've got another question here is relying on cloud native controls enough to secure i'll
1: turn this one around to you ashish what do you think about
0: that (laughs) i think based on our conversation i i I think there's the challenge that is not being solved by cloud native problems yes you're right access controls we spoke about that it definitely solves yes you can solve the access problem there's a lot more context around it but the amount of data that is spread across, I don't know if... the So, first of all, cloud service providers, they have data stores. You can control the access to it, but they don't have the context for, hey, this is the data which is sensitive. This is the data which is nonsense. I do care when Ashish logs in over here, but I don't care if Ashish logs in or does whatever this over be, because it's public data anyways. So that context that we were talking about, I think... That cannot be achieved by cloud native control. Someone has to kind of use an open source or some, some kind of a tooling to get some context around that whole layer. The other thing that I always talk about is I don't know how many people talk about data lifecycle in cloud as well. It, it's something that we kind of think, oh, yeah, of course my, I've put my, I've started sucking data. I guess I'm a telecom provider, like I was, Verizon, I guess I'm going to think of a name. I just collect data from people, get the username, username, ad- addresses, everything. But what happens to this data throughout the company? Like, it, that no one manages the data lifecycle as well. And there is no cloud data control for that, for how your data, that's that's all. I mean, I'm going to use the cloud service provider terminology. It's a shared responsibility. Yep. So what you might want to be, the, the, the long and short of it is it. you say yes and no. Yes, it helps you do access control, but no, because it doesn't have the context for what you need to, I guess, protect from a privacy law perspective, or from a data classification, data-sensitive perspective? Hopefully that answers your question, but that was a great question, man. Or lady, I guess, I don't, I don't know who that person was. Do you wanna add anything else? Yeah, to I'll
1: layer into that. So of course your traditional managed cloud services like RDS and, and S3, these things all have some security capability that's available within assuming you've turned those things on and configured them appropriately, right? So you can make sure encryption is turned on in each of those environments. You can make sure that your buckets, your managed cloud instances aren't public to the internet. You can make sure that you've enabled backup and recovery. But once again, in the shared responsibility model, all of those things are optional. So it's up to you to make sure if you've actually done those things to ensure that the infrastructure itself is protected. Then you get into the question of, multi-cloud environments or hybrid environments or things that aren't managed data services from the cloud provider themselves. You've got the snowflakes of the world and these other data lakes that need to be part of your overall data governance program. And certainly they're not going to cloud native controls for for those unique solutions that are provided by third-party vendors. Uh, And then lastly, to Ashish's point, once you get past the infrastructure layer, then the, the cloud service providers aren't looking at it at all. They don't understand your business obligations to the data. They don't understand the sensitivity of it to the organization. They just know you've got a redshift and based on however you set it up or however the administrator set it up, they're assuming that that's correct. And that's
0: not always the case. And I, I just realized who the person is. It's Chris I've Like I know, so Chris, Chris Glendon is also a podcaster as well, but he runs a barcode podcast. Definitely ask people to check it out. He's got another question as well. So Chris he, has another question around structured versus unstructured data in cloud. How does a protection strategy? Awesome.
1: And and first I do want to give a shout out to Chris, because I've had the opportunity to meet Chris in the past and he's got an awesome podcast and and he's one of the very, very well, well well-versed data protection experts that's out there. So he's probably another great person to to bring into this topic at some point, Ashish. But yeah, in, in any case, structured versus unstructured. Data in the cloud, how does the protection strategy differ? Great question. We could probably unpack that and spend a lot more than just the time that we have left on this Mm -hmm. podcast on that topic alone. Let me broaden the question a little bit and say, okay, when you look at a cloud environment and you look at data security, how should you be thinking about it? You should be thinking about you've got infrastructure as a service and you've got your kind of your structured data stores that are holding this structured data, which oftentimes are the crown jewels. Okay. And then you've got your data that's in your SaaS applications. And then third, you've got your, your data that's in file formats or unstructured data that's could also be in SAS applications, could be in cloud storage, and could be floating around the endpoints of your various users. You mentioned this term of data life cycle. Okay. And one of the big things that I'm an advocate of is if you can understand the life cycle from creation to deletion around data, then you can actually enable process in a continuous fashion that instruments that lifecycle and helps you protect the data on every step of the way. So in structured data, there is definitely a well-defined lifecycle. Like people create data stores. They configure them, they load data, they provision the access, they use the data, and then they archive the delay, the data. All these things are happening continuously and concurrently across the organization in many different places, but it's always the same steps. And if you build the right technology, you can always understand each one of those steps and contextualize it fully. So with that, That allows you to create controls and best practices for ensuring all the interactions with structured data are safe at every point in time unstructured is a little bit more of the wild wild west where things are floating around on different desktops and getting copied and pasted and packaged at different file formats and so there are solutions that are out there for that but the solutions that i've seen have been more of iterations on some of the traditional dlp type of technologies so trying to create a better mousetrap versus kind of looking at the problem differently and i think on the structured side we're able to look at the problem a little bit differently today unstructured is still that endpoint type of approach and trying to track it catch the exfiltration and then there's the whole question about sas and there's a hybrid approach you can take there because a lot of SaaS applications actually have structured data stores behind them. And so you can pull those in and manage those as part of your data lifecycle, like you would any other structured data. And then there's SaaS applications that have unstructured data within them. And so You can track that unstructured data via these next generation DLP tools like CyberHaven, et cetera, once it's floating around on the end users' endpoints on their various machines. But there are also some companies that are innovating around creating layers of protection around some of the SaaS providers themselves, like O365 or Google Drive, like looking at net effective permissions to content that's housed in those systems and then doing behavior monitoring around interactions with those systems. So I know that was a lot that I just Mm -hmm. dumped there Ashish, but the point of it is think of it as three pillars, your SaaS, your structured, and your unstructured and make sure you have a strategy for each. But there is no concept of best of breed that's going to solve all three. If you try to put a generic. Uh, One size fits all across all of those things, you're destined to have a lot of gaps.
0: Hopefully that answers your question, Chris, but that was a great question as well. And I definitely feel Chris is another person for data security as well. So Zina has mentioned taking a holistic approach, right? No one's security is ever efficient. That is 100% right. I think that's what she's trying to say over there. Thanks. Uh, I've got another question from Kapil. Uh, Kapil Bhareja, welcome man. What do you think about data hygiene controls beneath the IDAS layer? Do they solve the big data store issues? I think I got the question right. Maybe it's more... So I think the question is, if we have da- proper data hygiene on big data stores, does that solve this problem to some extent? I, I-, I have an option on it, but I, mean, I can try and answer it if you want, David. I- I'll-, I'll-, I'll kick it off and maybe you can finish it off. I- if, I- if I understand this correctly, what are you trying to refer to? Data hygiene in terms of data sanitation, having proper access control for user audits, like who has access to data store? I'm assuming you're referring to things like that. I think the challenge that what we were, or at least what David and I were referring to was just the broader scale of the data sprawl challenges as well as not just the fact that we have a data lifecycle, we have the different data kind of data classification defined, but the place where things get lost is how many people actually know how many data sources are active at the moment, considering now database administrator that you go to for a database, you just basically spin it up on yourself so I feel like a lot of the controls that we used to have earlier don't really apply anymore. In saying that, yes, access control is still valid if you have like an overarching control over it, but it, it, it definitely solves a problem for at a smaller scale. But if you're trying to kind of go beyond that, I think that's where we were at least saying when we were talking about this as well, where the, the challenge has become now the data is available to everyone in the organization And and not that it's wrong, yes, transparency should be there. But what that also meant is that we have kind of lost control over, hey, can David take out the PII that we've been taking from customer? Yes, he can. But would my DLP pick it up? Most likely not because he uses obscure copy thing that there is no DLP solution for. He's copied across into a data store that's been pulled out. And I, I, I think there's room for improvement for hygiene control. That's kind of where I'm coming from. But I don't know if you want to add something to that, David. Yeah.
1: And, and in fact, what I'll, what I'll add to that rather than just tackling this question directly is some more kind of scenarios that we're seeing around data security and challenges that are coming up that are just concrete examples that people are running into, right? Regardless of how good their data hygiene is. Number one, we find many places where somebody has spun up a database and it houses sensitive information and nobody even knows it exists. It's just there. It's just It's sitting there, the person who created it is no longer within the organization, nobody knows why it's there or what it's done, but it's just there waiting to be compromised. Other scenarios, we see people who have large data lakes and within those large data lakes they have multiple schemas within the data lake and some of those schemas are meant to be dev or staging environments or public environments and sandbox environments and others are meant to be restricted. so they give everybody in the organization access to anything in the public environment, but they want to make sure that there's no sensitive information in that public environment because that would be violation of law and violation of trust in the uh, what the organizations are working with. And we almost always discover data that's sensitive in places where it shouldn't be. The next thing that we we see happening is situations that effectively are impossible to identify through traditional DLP or so for example have a customer service organization and they have access to all of your customer data because that's part of the function that they have of fulfilling their job so from a privilege perspective they're supposed to be able to look at your customer data but from a behavior perspective should they be running queries on a bunch of customers that they have no business purpose or relation for their job function? Or should they be downloading lists of the entire customer roster? And this is a different question than just, should that person have access or should they not have access? So there's a lot of nuance within this process. Now you can actually create controls and monitoring capability to look for these types of scenarios continuously, but the underlying prerequisite for that is understanding all of the context around the data. And what I mean by that is data classification to the nth degree, not just is this thing a social security number, but is it a social security number? How are social security numbers supposed to be used by my organization? What applications and what user audience should have access to it? What legal obligations do I have to this? And if you understand all that context around every piece of data that you have, then you can monitor all this stuff really accurately. and with
0: Awesome. And hopefully that answers your question as well. But I wanted to quickly add something here as well, coupled with, I did a gig for big data security consulting uh, work that I did some time ago. And it was really interesting that to David, your point about data classification, because that project was a silo inside it's like a or oh, it was just when big data was the hype it is still the hype but they, everyone's like oh we should do big data big data we have so much data and everyone started doing it and i, th- I think my gig at that point was how do we do security for this in, in the cloud and how do we kind of go around securing this data i think the first question that I came up with was oh, how do we do data classification so we started working towards this data classification list right And you kind of realize, to your point about the nth degree, there is so many layers to data classification. Because just because you feel initially feel that you are dealing with social security number, like, oh, yeah, that's totally sensitive, for sure. But then you start talking to all these uh, data scientists who you need to give the data to. Like, oh, but they can't access it. Oh, okay, so what kind of data can they access? Oh, okay, so it's sensitive, but cannot be accessible by outsider. Like, so then you have another layer. All right, okay, so what data can be accessed by that? You can go for hours in terms of the different layers you can add to data classification that's just one part and the other one was in terms of having a degree of assets it's like we couldn't we could never figure out at any given point in time how many assets were there for which were actually storing data because technically a virtual machine can store data as well it's not just that it's the s3 bucket or it's just say your redshift or whatever the big data storage is and yeah so much complexity so many layers but 100% 100% great answer. And oh, I think we answered couple's question as well. But that was a great question, couple. Thanks for this, man. I've got Dr. Charlene K. Kuhn as well. So she agrees classification is really important as well. Thanks for that, Dr. Charlene. I was going to say, we've been having such an interesting conversation, man. And I-, I would love to keep going on. I have a limited time with you. So this is the challenge with having celebrities on the show. So... This is kind of like the final part of the podcast where I ask like three fun questions. So I've got three fun questions for you, which I just ask, I guess, so people get to know a bit more about yourself as well. The first one being, what do you spend most time on when you're not working on data security challenges? Today, I've been spending a lot of time working on data security challenges in the cloud. So what are you going to do now after, after you've done this?
1: Yeah, so I just love technology. And I I actually love the way that our industry is evolving. So to me, it's not just individual vendor A, B, or C, right? It's like, hey, what are we doing as a collective? What are we all marching to in terms of the same goals? And I really like the dynamic of working with and creating innovative technology and working with leaders and working with VCs and solving problems and looking at how we create the future. So from a work and business perspective, that's what I like spending my time on other than just data security. From a personal perspective, family, we've been in this pandemic and we've been fortunate enough to find ways to take advantage of it. So when my daughters had remote schooling, like let's go learn from somewhere else where I can work virtually and they can school remotely. But we can capture some experience and not feel like we're cooped up at the same time. So, traveling a lot of time with family—that's that's really been one of the, the the big things that we've been focused on, especially the last couple of years. It's been tough.
0: Oh yeah, I, 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 so it's funny. Not many people are creative enough to, I guess, apply some kind of like a creative layer to it. So, I'm, I'm glad you were one of them to be able to add a creative layer to the whole pandemic thing as well, man. Second question: What is something that you're proud of but is not on your social media?
1: That's not on my social media that I'm proud of. I really. Want when i think of the the sources of of pride one is around my around the business i'm proud of being able to create things that are actually helping people and and also like mentoring up and comers in the industry on both the go to market side and helping them understand like really what opportunity is there for them because a lot of people don't fully understand how to embrace all the opportunity that's in front of them as individuals so helping them understand there are no barriers there and to be able to do more. And, and number two is like the way I was raised was just super big on family. And so for me, my, what I'm really proud about is being able to share any successes or the journey that I have with my children. Fortunately, I I saw both my parents still around, my extended family and, 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 and my friends. It's, it's just like, if you can be proud of the people that are closest in your circle, then you're living a full life. And that's, that's, how i look at
0: it that's very well said man very well said and i definitely feel family and friends are definitely our source of pride and yeah i, I can, i i yeah i'm 100 with you on that one last question what is your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share
1: oh my goodness well if you've seen me and especially as i've been in and go to market on the technology side i've every year i've gained more pounds than i should because i take <laughs> a lot of dinners i'm a i'm a big foodie ashish so so it's it's never a specific cuisine. It's just the quality and the richness of the flavor. And when we launched Redlock, I was fortunate enough to come to your part of the world. I was in Melbourne and there were some really good Asian restaurants that I found in Melbourne and also a great, a great Greek place. But yep. so on that note, what I'll do is I'll offer I'll make an offer to the view. So I've been fortunate enough to travel through almost every all but two states in the United States and a fair amount over the world. And as a foodie, I've always gone and looked up and researched what are the best places to eat in all of these places so if anybody ever wants a recommendation anywhere hit me up and i'll point you to something amazing
0: perfect i'm definitely gonna do that because so so which two states have you not traveled to me the- so april's gonna kill me for this one because she's
1: our vp of engineering and she lives in mississippi and i've never all been right. i've never been to mississippi and i've never
0: been to alaska oh yeah that, that's too cold then it's like I, I, in a way it's good although i would love to go there as well one so I, I definitely i'm gonna get some tips from you and i'm definitely gonna encourage other people to reach out and find out some tips from me at least maybe from their local states like Yes, but so that was really good. That was a really awesome conversation. I do really appreciate that you kind of hung out with us and spoke about data security in cloud. Where can people find you if they have any follow up questions or?
1: Absolutely, you can find me on on LinkedIn, David McCall, and and you can certainly reach out to us at Desera, where we're working on solving these problems. My email address is dmccaw@desera.com, dmccaw at D-M-C-C-A-W at And love to talk to you about what you guys are doing in data. And if there's anything that we didn't touch on today that we should be thinking about or vice versa, if we can offer any insights based on the experiences we're collecting, we absolutely want to be able to do that. So thank you for the opportunity, Ashish. It's always a pleasure and I can't wait for the next one.
0: Yeah, same, same. And thanks for everyone who came in as well. I think- seems like everyone else also had a great time as well so thanks so much for it seems like everyone found it valuable as well so next week we are coming on with a different topic but i'm looking forward to having more conversations with you and maybe i can get chris as well and to chris and david come in and talk about data security so thanks so much everyone Uh, i will see you on the next weekend's episode but until then stay safe talk soon peace Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.